Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. When was the last time you stopped to deeply consider the perspective of someone with a totally different life situation than your own? I learned from a teacher named Wyatt Woodsmall that since we all experience the world from a very limited partial perspective, we can often end up making uninformed decisions because we're making our decisions from such a limited partial perspective. And if we want to become more wise and powerful humans who make better decisions, one of the things we can start to try and do is collect and piece together other diverse perspectives so that we build a more complete understanding of reality for ourselves. Because the more complete we can make our understanding of reality, the better we can be at making decisions. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, we get to explore a perspective that doesn't often get shared or spoken about because it's taboo and illegal. I'm talking about the perspective of sex workers. This episode features my super interesting queer non-binary friend, Elliot Endre. Elliot is a therapist, coach, writer, and public speaker who teaches psychopathology at San Francisco State University. Elliot's therapy practice is devoted to women and non-binary folk in the sex industry. When we talk about important issues like abortion or LGBT rights, the basic question underlying these issues is how much agency and autonomy we as humans get to have over our bodies. And sex workers stand at the front lines of this issue perhaps more than any other group of people. So their perspective is really important and worth listening to. That's why I know you're going to learn so much from this deeply enlightening interview with Elliot Andre. Elliot, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, and I'm really excited to share your wisdom with the community. So let's jump right in. Start by telling us what it is that you do. So uh, I am a person of several, several jobs. I am a clinician as a psychotherapist. I work in private practice in San Francisco, California, with sex workers and their partners, uh, I work with individuals as of right now. My background is uh, sex therapy, and I've worked with couples and individuals on aspects of sexuality for a long time. And previously before that, it was also in human sexuality, in prevention testing and counseling and HIV and AIDS research. 
um, and in minority healthcare and trans healthcare and research and access to medical care. Um, but uh, these days I'm utilizing my degree in psychology to benefit what I see as the most underserved population. Um, sex workers across the board, uh, they're not being met in healthcare services, they're not being met in social services and are stigmatized to such a degree that you're not even hearing from sex workers themselves in public forum unless it's anonymous because it's so dangerous to speak out. So I'm using my privilege as a clinician to lean in and do the work with sex workers. I, um, my other, other exploits are that I also offer um, business coaching because I have a background in small business and I have a, um, a teaching job as well. I, I teach fundamentals of psychopathology at uh, San Francisco State University. Okay. So clearly you're amazing and do all these awesome things. And there's so much interesting stuff to dive into from this. So what do you think it is that people don't understand or know about sex workers that you wish everyone could understand? That's a lovely question. Um, I think everybody knows somebody who is or has participated in sex work. And I think that the common misunderstanding is that sex work exists out there rather than here in the home. It's a very political conversation when we talk about sex work. And what I recognize in the work that I do is how personal it is. I consider sex work to be something that most of the world actually participates in. It's not a subsect of people who are exchanging cash for sexual services. I see sex work as work, as the labor that um, we're all participating in. There are some people who've created a business out of it, and those businesses are worth supporting. They're vital to society. Sex workers are vital to society. I think without them, we would flail. I really want to know more about why, how you say that we all participate in it through in, um, I just want to hear more about what that means to you when you say it. And I also want to know more about, about the vital role that they play and what we need to understand about why it is so vital. But let's start with this idea that your argument is that sex work is closer to the home than most of us realize, or it's closer to our own personal selves than most of us might realize. Tell me more about that. So uh, sex is a form of labor. It's a form of play. Um, and it's also a form of labor. The, there's a physical element to sex that most people participate in in their lives at one point or another. Um, we're all sexual beings. It's just a question of how we act upon it. But the labor of sexuality and, and the, the needs that each of us have around our own sexuality exist whether or not we participate in a cash economy, but we do. So it happens to be the best, one of the best bargaining tools that we have is our sexuality. Um, and especially when it comes to uh, the feminine in all genders, the, the receptivity and the, um, the sharing of oneself and being able to hold space for another person to transform and grow, whether that is um, literally creating life within a body 
or it is parenting, or it is um, the act of helping somebody achieve an orgasm. I see that. I see them as interrelated. They're all aspects of the creative feminine. Sex is just one of the ways in which we help each other and help ourselves uh, grow and transform. And so you're pointing towards, for example, the way that we use sexuality uh, for making connections maybe in business and, um, and maybe to some extent that use of our sexuality moves the economy forward in ways that then we're underestimating that then sex work is therefore a part of that work that we're doing, even if we're not bringing the other person to orgasm, for example. Is that what you mean? Yeah, there's a way in which sex becomes a commodity in uh, under patriarchal capitalism, um, but it existed as a commodity before then, or rather I should say it wasn't a commodity, it was a form of exchange. Uh, the labor of having children, the labor of raising children, uh, and the the labor of making sure that our sexual needs are met, whether that's with ourselves or with others, that that actually takes time and effort, and compensation should be based on effort. So, and then also, so motherhood could be seen mm-hmm. as a form of sex work from this perspective, of course, then, and should be seen. Yes. Well, I want to I want to make sure that sex work, as it's currently understood, is in relationship to capitalism and that sex is a form of capital and the exchange of sex for money is heavily stigmatized. So it's deserving of a category of its recognition that sex work is an experience of sharing one's sexuality for for a exchange. And under the current definition, that exchange is cash. But my personal perspective is that that exchange is far broader and much more embedded into society than we're looking at in a regular way. So when you say sex work as it is defined, would you mind for a moment, just so that I understand what your definition is, what is your definition of sex work then so that we're all on the same page? The exchange of sex for money. Got it. Okay. And so, and we talk about the vitality of sex workers, that they're vital. Um, Can you explain how are the various ways that they're providing a vital service that more people need to realize? Absolutely. Uh, So especially within, first of all, I'll start at the beginning. Um, We all have sexual needs, whether they are to share with ourselves or with others. If we grow up with sexual organs, they mature and they become part of our lives. And for most people, other than asexual people, with people who are choosing not to participate in sexuality for whatever reason, we have sexual needs that need to be met. And typically they, they are met with other people. They may not look like the actual act of coitus itself. They may look like um, the need to be near one another as adults and to spend time in bars flirting with one another or, or to, to be able to dress up and go out into the world and participate and be seen as, a, as, an, as an adult. I would say that there's an aspect of that that involves our sexuality. It's not only our sexuality, but that is a piece of it. Sex workers then take that important piece of it and magnify it and create beacons of opportunity for folks looking to explore their sexuality in one way or another. Yeah, you know, I oftentimes think about how lonely it could be for people. And it makes perfect sense that if someone 
is just desiring to have their sexual needs met, it makes perfect sense to me that if someone's willing to exchange money to fulfill those sexual needs, that has always made perfect sense to me. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a, money is one form of exchange, but it is the form of exchange that we value the most uh, in this world, in this modern capitalistic world. So the exchange of anything for money is usually done under the auspice that one person has something that the other person needs and a trade is made. If money is the thing that's needed and sex is the thing that's needed, then they are of equal value to the opposite person who's trading for them. I never thought of it in terms of that. When you talked about when you talked about exploring sexuality, I hadn't thought about that. So it's sex workers can then provide a safe place for people who might be curious about different things they never otherwise got to try in a safe place for them to do those things without risking maybe scaring off someone that they want to date in a different way. It's sort of a, another space for them, which can be quite safe. Yeah. I mean, exploring aspects of one's sexuality where there's shame um, is certainly a way in which I witness sex workers being um, incredible practitioners who are able to usher in and help transform and grow people. Um, but there's many different reasons why people access sex workers. The one, one being entertainment and entertainment, as far as I can see it, is a, it's a form of uh, celebration that's required by humanity. Um, and another would be uh, just sexual service itself, having a sexual need and having it met. Um, and it may be not being met in one's life for one reason or another. There's no reason to critique whether that's a good reason or a bad reason. It could present itself in people who have relationships uh, already or in people who don't or people who have a hard time accessing relationships or simply people who are looking to explore and be creative. Um, it exists in, in all forms and all humanity. And I think that's that's the, the primary uh, realization I've come to as a clinician working with sex workers is that it is in everything that we do. The idea of trade and the idea of capital um, and that sex is just one form of that trade and one form of capital. It's such an interesting perspective. And then also when I think about the perspective of the sex worker and the the closeness and the intimacy that they sh that they're sharing with this other person. I mean, with the with the people I've been sexual with, it's you know it's maybe our most vulnerable state, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the things they get to see and the sides of the humans they interact with and the sort of interactions they have must be so interesting. In my perspective, I think that sex workers deserve honorary degrees in counseling and sexual health because there's so many experiences of being able to hold people in vulnerable states um in in hopefully free of judgment you know but um in the experience of the client is worth asking the client about yeah i mean of course not every human is a kind human, so not every sex worker is going to be as kind as the others, but I imagine there must be such some really special people doing some really amazing things out there. Can you tell some can you tell some stories about this or some things that to to paint a, a better picture about what this might be like? So interesting. Um a little bit um with I without revealing any of my my 
private practice clients. Um, of course, for, for ethical reasons, I can speak to, I can speak to the amazing work that I've witnessed sex workers doing around the world. Sex workers um, behind bars and uh, offer services for incarcerated sex workers who've been criminalized for being for simply doing the work um, and these organizations maintain amazing connections with those women and people behind bars they'll send books they send letters and they um, petition their case to move forward so that it doesn't just get left behind um, and then in each different part of the world there are these red umbrella organizations the red umbrella is the symbol of sex worker decriminalization sex worker rights um, because it's a, an anonymous symbol. So you typically will see black umbrellas as the sort of ubiquitous image, probably of something like a, an urban center like New York. When it's raining, you see endless black umbrellas. And the red umbrella is this, you know, this one is not like the other ones. Red is also um, the color of sexuality. It's vibrant, it's bright, and it, it's not well hidden. Um, and so the red umbrella has become this international symbol. And so sometimes there will be marches um, and, and you'll see um, a lot of people holding a red umbrella because it's a way of keeping their face anonymous. Their body is able to be photographed. Not, although I would say anytime you photograph anybody, it's always worth asking, can I take your photograph? Um, but that way, at least it uh, provides some anonymity. Should they need it, they can pull it over their face. I never knew that about the red umbrella. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's just one of the ways that they're, that sex workers have been creative and um, insidious in, in being able to survive and persist in a very stigmatized world. That's so cool. Well, now if I ever see a red umbrella, I'm going to feel like I know what's up. <laughs> Can you talk more about the about the counseling that, that this role takes? Because I do think it is so, it, just getting back to the vulnerability of people on both sides, and I, I just want to know more about the, the counseling aspect of it. The counseling aspect of the work that sex workers do? Yeah. Or the counseling aspect of the work that I do with sex workers? The, sex, the work that sex workers do, just to understand their perspective more, to get a deeper feel for how important this really is. I think what comes to mind is pillow talk. And being able to share one's self, especially one's body with another person. But maybe think about any time you've hooked up with somebody or maybe you're having a, an ongoing dynamic with somebody. The conversations that might happen before or after sex tend to be more personal because at this point you've already shared or you're going to share something that is one of the most vulnerable personal things that you can share with another person. So a lot of times this creates an avenue or a, an open door to being very personal about what's going on in one's life. Um, I also think that part of the way sex work has been criminalized and ostracized means that folks will talk to sex workers as if they're talking to a priest or somebody who doesn't have a capacity to impact their livelihood outside of that moment, that they can confess, that they can be honest 
in ways that they might not otherwise because they're afraid of the shame that might come with it. So in that way, sex workers can become these beacons of secrets of humanity. That's so interesting because because of the fact that they're criminalized, because of the fact that they're so marginalized, they become an outside place to be safe, almost the way that a priest is inside of a, a church. Well, I would say it's not necessarily because of the ostracism. Um, I think this has existed. Sex work is the oldest profession there is. So this has existed prior to the stigmatization of sex. Um, and before the, stigmatiz- before the stigmatization of sex, sex work was much like priesthood. It was actually like that's that that's the former profession of nuns. Um, so there's a way in which you present yourself to a temple, a former church temple, and be um, taken care of by the people who work there and being able to show up to the house of the goddess to be able to show up to a place and say, please take me as I am. There's a lot of vulnerability in that. Please take me as I am in my body right now. The only other experience of that that's commonly felt by humanity is the experience of being mothered, which of course is regardless of gender and regardless of who's doing the parenting. But this experience of being taken as they are, being taken as I am in my body right now, that that is it's a huge position of vulnerability um, and the possibility that happens when people are vulnerable is, is, is transformation. And that's, I would say the primary purpose of sex is transformation, whether it be transformation through sexual pleasure, transformation through intimacy or transformation through procreation. Please take me as I am in my body right now. You're right. There is something that is such almost divine acceptance of the other person. That really is beautiful. But I really see what you mean. I've never heard it that way. I love it. It's not to say that every experience of sex or sex work is going to be divine. I mean, I would say that there are aspects of the divine that are um, dark and um, that experiences can be not positive. But I do, I do see them as holding an element of the divine regardless and it, whether it's in the in the back of a car whether it's a blowjob in the back of a car or an experience of going to the temple of the goddess i i see both i see both of the positions of the worker as being one that are have divine elements to them i do truly I want to get into what you seem to know about the ancient history of the sex worker, because you've been talking about this. You said prostitution existed before the stigmatization of sex, and you even said it's the former profession of nuns. So I want to hear more about that. And then we've also, I know you have some interesting, I want to, and then I want to hear more about this connection with the divine, the dark and the light, and how it plays into that. But can we start first with explaining um, what you know about, about the history of, of sex work? So I'm, I'm not a historian, and I would probably point you towards a few different people um, to talk about the history of sex work uh, before I run my mouth. And um, my, my research into the history of sex work is more specific to the history of uh, patriarchy and the history of, of the feminine within patriarchy. So a lot of the information that I'm getting, I'm studying about the history of sex work 
is through that lens. And of course, sex work existed before patriarchy because we've always needed sex. And sex has been for pleasure for a lot longer than it's been for religious reasons. Uh, religion itself is is more of a modern day concept. So my study has been into the role that the feminine plays in this world now and then tracing that back to perhaps not an origin story, but more of a mythological understanding of why things are the way they are now. And the best way I've been able to do that, given that a lot of you know, history is written by the oppressor and we we don't have a, a chronological order of events that we can look at and prove, what I've done is I've used mythology as a way of tracing the human experience I would say myth is the best tool we've got for the study of the evolution of human consciousness because it's it's story that we've passed down. And of course, story evolves. Story is an oral tradition, although it gets written down and then transformed by each author who takes on that story and rewrites it. And when a story is rewritten or a story is retold, aspects of the present are tied into it, much like a quilt or something that's like a fa fabric art. It's it's brought aspects of what's happening in our lives now in order to be able to understand something that's more of an archetypical concept. And this is also the best way to educate children. So stories will never die. Stories continue. They just evolve. And if we look at the story of Lilith, Lilith is an archetype that I've studied a lot because I would say Lilith is the, she's the modern day sex worker. Lilith was a goddess. She appears in Sumerian myths in the Middle East, where we would now call the Middle East, as a strong wind. And this is thousands of years ago. You know, think like, oof, Lilith is coming, batten down the hatches. She's, she's this force and she's an, she's an embodied geological happening. And then if you look into the myth as it transforms over time, Lilith becomes this um, succubus. Lilith becomes this creature, this goddess who appears in priests' uh, bedrooms at nighttime and um, encourages nocturnal emissions, which is to say she shows up and she's the reason why they have a wet dream is because she's this sort of corruptive figure that shows up and um, convinces them away from their puritanical values and towards something that is more embodied and um, more sexual. And that image persists today in the sort of the, the witch that we witness in movies, this, um, the bitch, the bitch, the, the businesswoman with big shoulder pads, who's nasty, who doesn't care about what you think. Uh, she's going to get her own way. She has almost a, um, um, a, a patriarchal quality to her, which I find really interesting. And so the transformation of Lilith, it has this way of explaining the way we've, we, the way we look at the feminine in all genders, which is this sort of corruptive, you know, the, it was Eve who ate the apple, but Lilith was present in the Garden of Eden story in at least the Christian Judeo myth prior to Eve was. Lilith was in this story as um, the equal to Adam. So 
we're already fast forwarded way past where Sumeria doesn't exist anymore. The strong winds have transformed in, in their name. Lilith is now in the Garden of Eden. She's in a whole other myth and a whole other pantheon in a different part of the world. Does she go by the same name? Lilith, yes. Uh, well, actually, Lilith has many names, but you can trace Lilith as a name throughout throughout a, a lot of history. But Lilith is also an archetypical name. But I would point you towards different people to study goddess mythology as well. I can give you some names. No, but get back to the Garden of Eden because you were you were on a roll. <laughs> yeah. So um, she said she was the equal to Adam. She was the equal to Adam, and uh, she wanted to be on top in lovemaking. She wanted to be on top, and Adam, in this myth, Adam says, "Oh, I don't know. Let me talk to God about it." So God has already appeared as this masculine figure in this myth, which will give you a perspective of where we are in time. And God says to Adam, no, that's not how it should be. Lilith should be prostrate under you. She should be receptive. You're in charge. And Adam says, well, what God says goes. And Lilith is devastated by this, the idea that she she loves Adam and she wants to be his equal, but She's not considered equal under, under the, in the eyes of God. So she flies up to the heavens to hang out with the cherubs because she loves babies. And God says, you can't be here. You're supposed to, you're immortal. You need to be back down on earth. And so you have a choice. Either you submit to Adam or you leave. And so with devastation in her heart, she leaves and she goes and lives on the Red Sea in a cave and the myth transforms from there and how she takes on this grief has become the modern version of the bitch. And in, in her grief, she births thousands of babies and kills them all. And uh, the myth kind of, it transforms with time to become this demonstrative, angry woman figure, this person who wanted, not a person, she's a myth, this myth of a, per, of a person who wanted to be equal, but never could be under the eyes of God. So if we look at that from, a historical perspective, what we're seeing is the birth of patriarchy and the idea that, you know, there's a decision, there's a decree that actually the feminine is no longer equal to the masculine. The feminine is, is, is less important and should be prostrate to the masculine. And so the idea that there are people out there who are freely expansive with their sexuality, who are choosing when they have uh, the desire to share it with others and claiming that agency over their bodies is very Lilith-like. So I've used Lilith to study the archetype of the sex worker. Tell me more about that. Well, there's, there's a way in which I think modern day whitewashed third wave feminism has suggested that sex is something only to be shared under certain circumstances, which of course mirrors, it mirrors a very specific religious doctrine that says that sex is for procreation. But um, to have agency over one's body, to, to claim terms like slut, or simply to be able to say, well, I choose when and where I share my body with other people because it's mine, is something that sex workers do every single day. So um, I would say that there's a, that that's the forefront of conversations about body autonomy, that sex workers are at the forefront of those conversations. 
And um, so from your experience, because I wouldn't call myself someone who knows a lot or who has studied a lot of feminism, are you pointing towards a, a way in which feminism works somehow against sex work? Uh, in present day, feminism has done sex work as a huge disservice. I don't think that feminism as an ideology um, is inherently sex worker negative. I think that's I think that's mostly something we get to decide that each of us get to decide what that means to us. What what is what is being a feminist? What does that mean to us? especially when notions of things like gender get involved. You know, if, if we consider gender to be a construct, then what is feminism becomes a very interesting question. But I think that's a, that's a very personal question that a lot of people are engaging with right now. Um, I don't think it negates it. I don't, it, it, just, it just evolves it. It transforms it, much like myth. We're transforming what feminism means to us as a value. But feminism as it has been an actionable experience for sex workers has taken this uh, a, a broad perspective that um, mm, nobody would choose sex work, that sex work is inherently dirty and uh, that it, it takes this sort of stereotype of the experience of what sex work looks like as uh, something that's extracted forcibly and that, then somebody who's choosing sex work, whether it's for, you know, for their own personal empowerment or if it's just financial need, that, that they're somehow not in charge of that choice, that they don't have agency in making that choice. It's not to say that all sex work is this positive, happy experience where people are, are saying like, wow, it's just so wonderful to be able to share my body with another person. It could be, you know, just a very basic financial need. It's, a, it's just a job. But that that's a choice to be able to use your body in that capacity. I would say that there's a lot of sex negative, anti-sex worker feminist rhetoric out there. And it's probably most apparent in the rescue industry. The rescue industry? Yes. So uh, there's a huge, the, the biggest amount of funding that exists to engage with sex workers in, a, in public forum is in the rescue industry. Meaning rescuing women from sex work? Rescuing women from sex work, yes. So in theory, what this looks like is, uh, is it's, it's, it's a saviorism complex. So in theory, the idea is that a woman shows up to the doorstep of another woman and says, you don't have to live this life. I know you don't want to do it. Let me whisk you away. And, you know, and, and by doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to, I'm not really sure actually, because the rescue industry fizzles in its, in its reach very, very quickly. It tends to be most broad sweeping in policy. And the best example of that right now would be FOSTA, uh, which is a federal law that changed the way advertising and the use of the internet can interact with sex work. It made platforms, internet platforms, think like Wix, Squarespace, Google, it made internet platforms liable for the content that they host, which meant that they got to choose the con what would make them more liable. Um, and liability, of course, is, is the thing that companies are always uh, trying to avoid. 
So if sex is heavily stigmatized and somebody is advertising sexual services, sexual services are criminalized under at least the American system, um, then it would make that company liable should should somebody take on a lawsuit and say, well, you know, I wouldn't have been X, Y, Z if this platform didn't host this content. So it's meant broad sweeping changes in in the way that people can access the Internet to ask for referrals and to screen their clients. So instead of being able to find out, okay, well, this is where a client works. um, And now we have the sort of enough information on each other that it would be foolish to do anything that would hurt one another. The idea is is that it's sort of an old school form of liability is just the referral system. So that means that oftentimes sex workers are talking to other sex workers. Hi, have you seen this person? Here's his phone number, his email address. He says he saw you in March. Can you verify that you saw him? And, you know, was he a respectful person? How did he treat you? What was the session like? And sometimes there's even more information involved, like, you know, what was he like in session? Is there anything I should know about? And then there's this this conversation, this green room-like conversation where people say, yes, he's safe, but just be aware that uh, X, Y, and Z. Or like, actually, I've never seen that person before. I don't know how he got my number. Um, so make your own choices. That there's a really important system in place there that has then been taken away by this legislation and made that really tricky for people to have those kinds of conversation means that people have taken to the street in unprecedented numbers. Like in San Francisco alone, the moment Foster was passed, street prostitution, street sex work, street level sex work went up 400% overnight. So there's a way in which the rescue industry, and I'm thinking specifically of like the stars who supported Foster, Amy Schumer was one of them. Amy Schumer is a champion for women's rights and she gets up there and talks about body autonomy. But then she went through the rescue industries, through these different organizations, which I won't list because I I wouldn't want to give their names airtime. She decided to jump on a platform and suggest to politicians that Foster should be passed without actually talking to sex workers themselves. The rescue industry is not based in sex workers' rights, sex workers' needs. It doesn't actually have a, a... a link to talking to sex workers themselves. It's entirely fabricated. It's made up of um, its own kind of myth. And and it uses statistics in ways that are very unethical. It uses trafficking statistics, which that do involve sex some at some point, but it's a very, very small percentage. And I would, I would point you to Kate Duamo, who is a um, statistics uh, wizard who knows much more about that than I do. But agriculture tends to be the main form of trafficking that exists in this world right now. It's the, the thing that we need the most because it's, you know, it's not the Beckys out there picking our avocados in the field. So agriculture is the main form of migratory work that exists in this world. But sex work, of course, is also migratory. It's just a much smaller percentage of what gets done work-wise and what gets picked up is this broad number of data points. Are you talking about migratory or are you talking about slavery? Because I think when you're talking about trafficking, I think more about slavery. And it's interesting that you say there's way more agricultural slavery, if we call it slavery, to the extent that these people don't really have freedom to choose. There's more agricultural slavery in the world than sex slavery. 
is what you're pointing at, right? Well, I think the language, I think the language around this is really important. So slavery suggests that somebody is not receiving compensation for effort. And if all work is work, then the work itself becomes a labor issue. So that means that it doesn't matter what the work is. If you're, if, if you're saying, I will do this for you, I will pick your carrots, I will offer you sexual services. It, it doesn't matter what the work is so long as somebody's saying, actually, yes, I would like that work. And in exchange, I'm going to give you this. That's an agreement. Under labor laws, that would be considered work. Without those labor laws in place, it becomes a field day for wrongdoing and for people being taken advantage of. So slavery is something very specific. And, and when we're talking about labor, it's very important to distinguish between what is slavery, taking somebody against their will and uh, forcing them to do labor, versus what is a lot of migratory labor, which is a willful choice with auspicious circumstances. And those auspicious circumstances are the thing I'm addressing. Those auspicious circumstances are the criminalization of certain services under the law based on stigmatization. Right. I mean, I'm very clear. When I say slavery, I just sort of mean lack of choice. So I was picturing, you know, I, I heard stories about men being kidnapped and put on these fishing boats deep out in sea, and they don't really have a choice to leave, and they're being guarded, and it's sort of forced labor. And so when you were talking about the rescue industry using false statistics, they were even taking trafficking statistics. I thought you were referring to some sort of thing where someone doesn't have autonomy and whether or not they get paid doesn't matter to me. My thought on slavery is a question of whether or not the person has the right to choose. But it sounds like you are only talking about things where they have the right to choose. And it makes perfect sense to me that if a woman has the ability to make, you know, $70 an hour in sex work, and if someone takes her away from that, this rescue industry decides that's not okay. You should instead be making a minimum wage of whatever, $12. I don't know how much that is. I don't know the minimum wage. But in other countries, much less. You should be making a fraction of that amount because we're going to rescue you with our saviorism complex and have you do this other work where you'll make much less and have to work much harder and longer. I, I can understand why you know there would be a choice. I, I'm just assuming sex work pays better than minimum wage work. <laughs> most people enter sex work for the money um so i i and i think that you know there's, there's a, a variety of different levels of income in in sex work that's worth mentioning too because uh, the the assumption is that it's a monolith it's not it's as varied an industry as any other there are different rates of pay there are different privileges that exist within the structure of sex work even though it's not a a physical structure. There's not a, there's not brothels in America unless you're in Nevada. But there's there's a hierarchy that is that exists and privilege that exists within sex work, the sex work industry, just like any other. So that means that white bodies are valued more than black and brown bodies, and folks with European features are valued more highly, are able to get a higher rate of pay. And then also the amount of sexual services is just so varied. You know, we're looking at domination, we're looking at dancers, we're looking at escorts and rent boys. And I mean, there's just so many different things that people do for money. It's just that it doesn't exist as a decriminalized 
easily advertisable system. And just to tie everything back to what you're saying, we're talking about this patriarchal, this, this archetype, the myth, the patriarchy, and the irony of the people that say they're trying to rescue, or there's or the idea of the people that are trying to quote unquote help the sex workers. The only thing they're really doing is trying to pull them out of that lifestyle. And actually, then they make the lives of these women so much harder and so much more dangerous when, for example, there used to be an internet platform where where they could advertise, where they could give referrals and get referrals and have testimonials and have a very safe environment. Safer, a safer environment. Yes. I mean, under a criminalized system, it's the, the he said, she said aspect of it is very important to look at. And an agency of one's body and the decisions that you're able to make with one's body. The reason that it, this ties back into patriarchy so heavily is because it has to do with people being able to have agency over their bodies. Uh, and the decision that folks make in the rescue industry that people don't have agency over their own bodies and that they're somehow clouded in their judgment, it removes the notion that they're able to make choices based on their circumstances. And then just tying it back to feminism, the way that in modern day feminism has been contributing to this, to this misconception that anyone who's choosing sex work must not have an agency or that they wouldn't choose it if they didn't have to, which is false. Um, it's, it's, it's false and it's, it's, a, it's a very narrow perspective on life. It doesn't take into account people's circumstances and it doesn't take into account their voices. And if someone is saying, I choose what I do with my body, and another person is saying, yes, but you don't know any better, then you've got a problem because you've got one person exerting their ideas about what another person should do with their body onto them. And the rescue industry is much more insidious than that. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. I, I work in the field of psychology. So the, the information that I'm like, this, that this is coming from is clinical. And I want to, I want to, empower anybody who's listening to this to go and actually listen to the voices of sex work try twitter and and actually ask ask a sex worker listen to a sex worker and my perspective is as a clinician who's holding space for sex workers and so that it's that is a, a specific perspective and i want that i want to make that very clear no, well, your perspective is fascinating, and I'm so grateful to share it because it's this is a conversation I haven't had the opportunity to have before, and I think it's it's shedding light on so many things that I wouldn't have thought of. You were saying something about consent, or the he um, said you were saying something about he said she said, he oh, said yes. she said, and then and then yeah, what was that? So, well, um, so here's an example. Uh, in certain states in America. If a sex worker went to the law and said, I was raped, I went to a call and I was not paid for my time, or I went to a call and I was held forcibly against my will, then that testimony is not considered evidence of wrongdoing because they're a sex worker. Because the idea is that, once again, we're back to this notion that once you've crossed this line in the sand or this invisible line in the sand and you've decided actually I'm going to exchange um, sexuality for money rather than 
sexuality for marriage, sexuality for children, sexuality for a home and a dog. Um, that once you cross this line and you've said, actually, I would prefer to be paid in cash, that you lose your autonomy and, and therefore you lose your humanity and your, your rights and dignity under the law. Wow. It's massively problematic. I mean, from the perspective of just uh, for the feminist perspective of body autonomy and agency, it, it falls apart very quickly. The idea of one person saying, well, you don't know what you do. I mean, where have we heard that before? Where? Religious doctrine. The idea that, you know, these heathens, these poor heathens, they know not what they do. Hmm. Right. What Jesus said on the cross or something, right? something i don't know i'm a good jewish girl these aren't things i know about but it sounds familiar <laughs> forgive them father they know not what they do is, is this story i think i remember yes yes is that yeah. am i right <laughs> you are right you are right i went to hebrew school they don't teach those parts you know give me a break <laughs> <laughs> um so then if you could change the world to have it your way or based on what your clients would be best, not that we're, of course, we're taking away the idea that we know what's best for anyone else, but if you could um, be giving feedback from what has been reported to you from what the actual sex workers have reported that they think is best for them, not because you're choosing for them what is best for them, but based on what you've actually learned, what do you think is needed and what do you think a better way forward would be? So that if anyone listening, if, if, if we hear of a proposition like that moving forward, we're able to frame it the right way and say, oh, I, I've heard of that. And yes, that's a good idea. And that's coming from the right place. Well, two things. Uh, one is very practical and one is very personal. The practical change that I would like to see in the world is the decriminalization of prostitution, the decriminalization of sexual labor, because that would have such a monumental impact on everybody's lives. It would impact directly it would impact sex workers by making work something considered valuable, real labor. And the psychological implications for that, as a, as a, as a person in psychology, I, I would say they are as big as the, as the physical safety implications. Of course, I'm speaking from my clinical perspective, but to tell somebody your work is real, the amount of time that you spend creating an atmosphere, whether it's in your physical body or in, in the environment you're working with, that is a welcoming one that um, allows for people to approach you and then the actual labor of sexual services to, be, to consider that real work under the eyes of society would have such huge psychological implications. And then on the physical side, it would mean that there you couldn't be arrested and thrown in jail for offering sexual services. And that would impact greater society by considering body autonomy something that's within the hands of the person who's making their choices. And that would be much larger, larger reaching than a sex work industry itself. It would have implications in body autonomy and migration movements. It would have implications in feminism and with, with marriage and the way that people have access to, to rights within their own um, homes. And then on the personal side, 
I would like to eradicate shame. I think, uh, you know, shame around sexuality is, it's just dogging us. It's dogging us in humanity. It, it slows down our greatest of intentions when we have shame around our bodies and our sexuality. And then I'll just throw in one more that when we stop arresting and jailing people for something that actually isn't fair to jail them for, we save a lot of money just practice while we're listing practical things. <laughs> well, the prison industrial complex is a whole other conversation, <laughs> but it is a total, I would say it's, it's a, it's a useless, needless, wasteful thing to do uh, is to arrest predominantly women uh, and to throw them in jail is, is a, is a waste. It's a, it's a waste of, human lives it's a waste of taxpayer money it's it's just a waste it totally is i think that this has been the most interesting perspective i've ever learned about I've, the, the most interesting perspective i've ever been shared with uh, on the sex worker industry and i'm so grateful for it but i think up until now a lot of what we've pointed at are ways in which societies understanding of sex work has been inappropriate and, and harmful. I'm also interested because I, there's a whole other side that we haven't talked about, which could be quite empowering. And I'm sure that from your experience of counseling sex workers, they probably have some great wisdom that could actually be quite empowering for, for other women. If only we could see things from that perspective, you know, you talked about removing shame shame about sex work, but there might be other, I don't know, I have a feeling they have some superpowers that we haven't considered that you might be able to shed some light on. Is there anything that comes to mind? I think, yeah, uh, that um, body autonomy is a personal choice, that what we do with our bodies is entirely up to us, and that the shame of what we do with our bodies and the way they are is something that is a modern-day invention. Shame is a modern day invention. Talk more about that. Well, shame itself, I would say, is a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a intentionally created by, by humanity on a social structural level. Shame is a tool used to um, countercorrect from a biological perspective. Um, for example, you know, if, um, if, if a relationship exists between a mother and child that becomes sexual it is shamed in human social behavior because that's a biological misstep and so it's there are reasons that shame exists but we've chosen to take on religious shame around being being sexual beings at all and that that is a modern day invention the idea that our bodies that the, the human viscera is somehow bad and wrong that that the fluid our body creates, whether it be sexual or it be blood, that, that, that it is somehow um, dirty or bad, that that is a modern day invention and that is upheld by a lot of different religious doctrine and that that religious doctrine has a half-life that affects all, all different aspects of social life. A half-life. Yes, a half-life. It, it doesn't just exist in the church. The church exists in the school. The church exists on a political 
level. It exists mm-hmm. in Congress, and it's in it's informing because people carry their religious beliefs everywhere. Yes, people carry their religious beliefs everywhere, but even. Even people who've grown up atheist will often experience sexual shame because the greater society holds these values that have been informed by religious doctrine. And I'm talking, I'm talking just about all religious doctrine that exists in the world, like the major big heavy hitters. I'm talking about Christianity, Judaism, Muslim religion. That that sexual shame has has through colonialism and through patriarchy has actually seeped into the fabric of human life. And you said earlier, actually, that sex work used to actually be part of religion. You talked earlier about in in ancient history where it sounds as if there was maybe during a time of greater yoni worship, the sex work was actually a thing that was considered holy. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's plenty of evidence to show that temples existed, temples of the goddess existed, and that um, sex work, although not called sex work then because we've given these things names to understand them in modern context, that that was an experience of transformation that you would be able to go and actually access in a certain place, sort of a old school brothel, if you will. But it, it was it was always much more than just a brothel. It was, you know, it was a, a way of taking care of, of community, creating and taking care of community. And that, that's existed for, for a very long time. But I'm also looking at pre-patriarchal society and my own my own studies that sort of fall outside of my, my clinical research and fall outside of teaching about psychopathology or looking after people in my, my private clinical practice. It's just a personal interest of mine is to study pre-colonial spirituality and myths are, are the way through to stitch together and to, to understand how sex used to be considered holy. And you can look at different pieces of art and sculptures and statues that we've kept from pre-patriarchal times that show that we were matriarchal societies and that uh, the, the wealth and value of a community was always the health and vitality of the women. I don't know much about history, but I do remember two of my favorite historical fiction books. One was Memoirs of a, Ge- of a Geisha, and the other is called Shogun that are from, I think Shogun was, I, I'm forgetting exactly what countries they were supposed to be from because these are books I read a very long time ago. But they really painted such um, almost a beautiful picture of sex work and how important it could be and how much intentionality there could be behind it and how beautiful of a role it, it filled in when it was, re- I don't want to say revered, but really respected in those cultures. It was really a respected form of art. And I loved, I loved those books. So sex work has and will always be a vital need for society the question is just how do we choose to interact with that vital need yeah well i really hope this goes in the right direction because you're making some really beautiful points and i love everything that you're saying thank you is there anything else that you'd want to share or any other wisdom or ideas or that you think is important that you would want women to know about anything about any topic or this? Well, I think that your audience reaches a lot of lesbian women. And something that I hear routinely is, is that it, sex work, sex is 
hard for women to access, uh, whether it's with each other or just from the world, that sex is this sort of complicated way of engaging with the world. And I want to put out there that most sex workers that I have had a conversation with in my personal and professional life have suggested that they would love more more women to approach them and that these are you know like listed on their on their ads online and that the the idea of becoming a client a female client for a sex worker both male and female and non-binary and trans that there's a lot of desire out there to meet those needs and to consider that a viable option all right i never thought that's where this is going but right on (laughs) i figured i'd reach your target audience yeah hey there you go is there anything else that I haven't asked you but I should have? I don't think so. I think we, we certainly went off on a tangent today. And I, I know that some of the things I, I was speaking about today, I am not an expert in. Like I said, my expertise is, is in psychology. But I hope that that whatever I, I've said, if anybody's interested in it, that it can be fact-checked and that, that the, the voices of sex workers are considered worth listening to and upholding when any kind of policy jumps on the table that is going to impact them. Yeah, well, I know for sure, for my part, everything you said was super interesting. And I will be more aware now when I see certain things. I don't know that I'm going to see them on a ballot, but when I see things spoken of, my ears are going to perk up differently than they used to. And I think it's been really a valuable perspective, even if it wasn't coming out directly of a sex worker's mouth. I think you did a great job of sharing ideas that otherwise might I, I, I might never have heard about. So thank you so much for that. It's my pleasure. Where can women who want to find you go to learn more? Uh, I have two websites. One is devoted to my practice here in California and seeing people here in person. That's www.therapyforsluts.com. And I work with uh, women and non-binary people at the intersection of sex, money, and power. That looks like a lot of different things. Most of those people are sex workers, but some are not. And uh, I also have a broader reaching offering that allows me to work across borders. And that's www.babesinthebiz.com, spelled B-A-B-E-S in the B-I-Z.com. It's cute how you said Zed. (laughs) <laughs> I am foreign. I'm Australian. Yes. And, and of course, you identified correctly that a lot of the humans who listen to this podcast do identify as lesbians. You're also a, a part of the community. How, what is the way that you speak about yourself and your identity? Uh, so I am a dyke and I am queer and I'm non-binary. Boom. <laughs> well, you're that all of that and a fascinating, awesome person to speak to. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to share all of this with, with the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, Jenna. And now I would love to hear from you. We talked about a lot of things during the interview, but I'm curious, what of the many things we spoke about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, 
then there are free resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to finding your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.